0: PT Pro Talk Podcast, the fastest way to increase your knowledge with the brightest minds of physical therapy in your pocket. Welcome to PT Pro Talk Podcast. I am Mariana Tondo, your host for today. In this episode, Dr. Stefan Zeffelin will talk about nutrition and physical therapy. Stefan is a physical therapist and the founder of Love to Move. I hope you enjoyed the show. PT Pro Talk podcast is only possible with the support of the forward-looking and innovative company, Rangemaster, the most trusted brand for shoulder therapy tools. Available now on Amazon. Hi, Dr. Stefan, welcome to PT Pro Talk. How are you today?
1: I am doing fantastic. I've had a very restful couple of weeks, so I'm, I'm excited to get back at it.
0: Awesome uh so let's jump right in tell us a little bit about yourself your career and how did you get where you are right now
1: sure um so in general i in undergrad had no idea what in the word physical therapy was i didn't even know it existed or anything like that and i was in kinesiology and my parents said hey you should look into a grad school so I said, well, uh, okay, I'm really running out of time here. I gotta finish in four years. What in the world am I going to do? And found out that with kinesiology, you really do occupational therapy or physical therapy, it seemed. And when I found physical therapy, I fell in love with it. I thought, you get paid to do this? This is amazing. Yeah, definitely, I love it, let's, let's do it. Um, and uh, I actually shadowed with this Puerto Rican physical therapist who she always called me Estefano, which was glorious. <laughs> and I loved that um, consistently, <laughs> but got into PT school, Um, And I I went, I went to Arcadia University, which is a very homey school. They very much treat their PT program as a family and you feel it immediately. Um, Loved that. I unfortunately got a parasite the first uh, semester and I had to, I ended up going, long story short, blind throughout the process of PT school. And that led up to me really getting heavily into manual therapy because when you're blind, it's easy to do manual therapy. You feel everything a lot easier. And uh, that really kind of opened me more up to sort of the Maitland um, side of things, but really just looking out and finding and searching what what more is there to do in physical therapy uh, besides just, hey, tell people to do three sets of 10 of exercise of, of knee extensions with little ankle weights. Like what more can we do? And our program was really good about that, um, of really incorporating all these things. And then uh, got into the clinic, started actually first in um, a skilled care and nursing facility and a long-term care facility and that was interesting but i also found out that i was probably the most up-to-date clinician there by far and i was teaching most of the people there which i thought i'm a new grad this is not right this this should not be like this i should be the one taught and learning from people so i found a different place and they were really heavy into manual and they were really heavy into teaching um, their clinicians and that was fantastic um really honed in my skills as far as manual and then, come uh, the beginning of this year, the, the whole vision aspect of things made me despise documentation. Um, and I know by far I'm not alone. Even all the seeing patients or uh, therapists don't like documentation. It's not the, the favorite part of clinicians, I feel. And uh, inevitably, I just said, you know, I think I'm done with clinical physical therapy. And I started my own business of more of a consulting side of um, helping companies and desk workers get a little bit more movement and reduce the amount of sitting. So it's a little bit of ergonomics. Uh, it's a little bit of PT. It's all these sorts of things, uh, but it's not billed as PT. Um, so this has led me now to working on a book and doing a TED Talk. So that's that's been the whole trajectory of it all.
0: That's very interesting. And I feel like many PTs are shifting. And I feel like this, since the pandemic happened, a lot of things changed and people were kind of questioning themselves and what is my purpose, what I really want to do. And, um, so it's been a year full of changes and challenges and, um, taking people to different paths. So that's very interesting. Um, and today we're going to talk more about nutrition, PT and nutrition. So that's a topic that, um, I haven't talked here on the podcast before. So I'm excited to see uh, where that's going to go. And so let's start talking about where do various agencies stand on allowing PTs to discuss nutrition?
1: So um, even as a student and for a long time, I was, I've just been a fan of nutrition and I love nutrition. And I think it's something that um, everybody needs to know. And we as PTs, why in the world would we even talk about nutrition on this podcast is that uh, nutrition fuels our bodies. So I've heard people, I've heard therapists talk about various little things, but it felt that everybody always, they would say a little bit and then they would get withdrawn because they don't know. They don't know what they can say and what they can't say. So in November of 2017, so four years ago, the APTA said that their stance is that nutrition is within the scope of practice of physical therapists. So that's where the APTA stands. However, there was the caveat of where they said, look into your state's practice act and see what the practice act says. I'm not gonna go through all 50 states, um, but we'll talk about Tennessee, given that's where we are. And uh, Tennessee basically says that nutrition and diet in quotations are not mentioned in the practice act. Um, so it doesn't say that we cannot uh, say that. It also doesn't mention it for physicians, dentists, chiropractors, or nurses. So we would expect that a physician, sometimes we say, yeah, go talk to your doctor about it. That also doesn't set it in their act. So. By all intents and purposes, it seems that it doesn't disallow us to do that. On top of this, um, the nutrition, the Center for Nutrition Advocacy essentially says that nutrition isn't one um, sort of professions tool set. It is across all professions, and you can basically use it to give good patient care. So They effectively allow us to do it. The bottom line of all of that is... You can talk about nutrition as long as you do not label yourself as a dietitian, because we are not, and as long as you do not specifically bill for diet purposes. What does that mean? Because that's the, the gray area that people can sometimes get into. We bill for education all the time. Education is definitely something that you can do for patients. What is the purpose of your giving them nutritional advice? If you're saying, hey, I'm trying to give them advice to help them lose weight because they have bilateral knee arthritis. And we know that losing weight is greatly going to reduce their pain. Perfect. That you have a a diagnosis that PT is meant to treat and you're helping them improve that diagnosis. That works. Now, if you're just saying, Hey, I saw this great diet and you should try out this diet. No, that's, that doesn't necessarily mean that, but as long as you're not billing for diet, you can absolutely talk about it. That's sort of the bottom line. If you are in a different state than Tennessee, check your practice act. But most of the time, it's just completely left out.
0: So I think you just answered the next question: How can we discuss nutrition without getting in trouble? So not not billing, uh, as you just said, and using to implement in our diagnosis. Anything else that you want to add to that?
1: Uh, sure, and I'll do more of how you would specifically talk to patients uh, about mm-hmm. nutrition, but. This isn't always true, but generally, if you're getting way into the numbers about nutrition, like if you're giving out diet plans and a meal plans and these kinds of things, you're probably going a little too far. Um, it's great to give these general guidelines. And there will be some numbers. We'll talk about some post-surgical numbers that you might want to use for nutrition. But in general, if you're discussing numbers, like how much magnesium they need or anything like that, maybe you're going too far, but that's at your own discretion at that point.
0: Okay. And what are the current trends?
1: So these won't surprise most people. I think a lot of us know that, in general, we are overconsuming calories um, as, as a nation. And this, these are U.S. trends, um, but uh, overconsumption of calories, um, overconsumption of protein and fat, specifically saturated fat, um, generally an underconsumption of uh, fiber uh, for us, as far as it seems. And and so water, definitely people in general are not consuming water. We're not gonna touch too much on water. I think most PTs do a great job about recommending water and telling people to drink water, but we'll talk about it a little bit. Uh, But those seem to be the general trends. And so in general, not surprisingly, fruits and vegetables are not being eaten quite as much. There was an interesting study in terms of the fiber. So we know that we've been under consuming fiber for a while, and patients were being told this, and various um, study subjects were being told this, and over a decade of being told this, the amount of fiber they consumed didn't change. So that's another kind of issue of, yes, we're telling people this, yes, the information and knowledge is out there, but it's not being incorporated appropriately. Uh, That is a lot of what I also try to do and just in the movement side and not the nutrition side as well of how do we get people to change? How do we Help with habits, but those are the general trends. And what we're going to talk about is trying to address uh, those trends specifically.
0: Yeah. So, what are some important get guidelines to know for nutrition, like protein, so, carbs, fats, all of that?
1: And I think that's kind of the easiest uh, for a lot of people: is protein, fats, and carbs. Protein being probably one of the most important ones for us, and one of the most justifiable ones for us given that we can say, hey, protein is the thing that's gonna rebuild muscle tissue. And in general, if we're talking, we're gonna talk later about inflammation probably, um, uh, the idea of what is, what do we need in order to have our patients get better faster? So with protein, a lot of therapists tend to think, in my experience, this is purely in my experience, that people are not eating enough protein and people need to be eating more protein. Um, there is a lot of, in the fitness industry, there is this constant talk about more protein, more protein, taking a lot of protein. Um, the number that's thrown around a lot is you need to get a gram of protein per pound of body weight, which is a crazy amount of protein, but I'll tell you where it comes from. So there was a study published a while back in the International uh, Nutrition uh, Sports, Sport Nutrition Journal, and they effectively said that in their research, for elite athletes, they required anywhere from 0.8 uh, to 2 grams of protein per kilogram of body weight. Now, to help people with the whole metric and transitioning side to things, kilogram was about 2.2 pounds, which then transitioned to, it was about 0.36 grams to 0.9 grams per pound. So we round that up to one gram. But that all came out from the top of the elite athletes should be consuming one gram per pound of body weight. So if you're having normal individuals that aren't having that much muscular tissue breakdown and need of recovery, consuming that much, you're overloading the system with a lot of protein. So really, we should be looking at and we'll talk about the exact sort of percentages uh, that are best, but fine, even if they're working out and they're doing some sort of exercise, a third of their body weight is still an adequate amount of protein when it comes to surgery. Um, though the easy rule of thumb is one gram for two pounds of body weight, usually after surgery. Um, and then depending on if the surgeon ever even tells the patient that, but you can talk to the surgeon and after a while, they may be okay with you going down to one gram for three pounds, which is one, once again, that third, um, Really, a lot of it has to do with also the quality of protein, which we're going to talk about later and what different things can cause inflammation, because you might be consuming a lot of protein. But if you're causing a lot of inflammation in the body, that's not even going to be necessarily helping uh, you recover from the surgery, whatever it may be. So for general people, the bottom line is about 10% ish uh, is going to be protein. Recent guidelines, they're kind of starting to go up um, in how much you need out of that, Uh, but 10% is the bottom line, sort of across the board for adults is 10% protein. When it comes down to fats, um, it seems about 20, 25% of our calories should be coming from fats and then the rest, which is anywhere from 60 to maybe 75% is carbohydrates. We will talk about the kinds of carbohydrates and why you should choose the various things. Um as well. But that's sort of your, your general thing. It tends to be that a lot of meals are focused around increased protein and increased fats. So we're overeating the fats uh, and the proteins. And then the carbs may not be surprising, are coming from a lot of sugars. Um, so that's not helping otherwise. But that's the general outline. Um, I don't know if there are any specific questions that I missed out on that.
0: Um, no, I think as we talked a little bit more about it, it's gonna be more clear. I guess. Um, so what to you know about nutrition and inflammation that you just mentioned about inflammation now, and then osteoporosis and obesity.
1: Right. Um, so we'll go through them. And I, I kind of picked out um, the inflammation, osteoporosis, and uh, obesity was going to be more of a combination of um, heart disease and diabetes as far as uh, what we're treating. I think these explain the the rationale for what foods we need to be picking. And on top of that, they are absolutely pertaining to physical therapy. So inflammation is a huge thing that we have to deal with because if tissues aren't recovering well, you may be doing all the mobilizations and exercises you want, but it's still going to slow down the overall process. So what foods increase inflammation? Not terribly surprising. Sodas, refined carbohydrates, refined uh, oils, uh but on top of that red meat um and processed meats so this is where i tend to get a lot of the hate is when i t- touch talk about meat uh, and all these things but through research everything that i'm going to talk about all of these things my goal is to present the evidence and then you make the decisions for yourself i have made my decisions but i am here just to present the evidence so fair enough. um Processed, uh, processed meats are now in uh, a group group two carcinogens, which is the same group as tobacco and plutonium. This gets blown way out of proportion because people are like, when you eat bacon, it's like eating plutonium. No, 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 no. All it's saying is that processed meats have shown a direct link to cancer. That's all that that's saying. Red meats are in group one. All that that is is that there is a high likelihood, but we haven't found a direct thing. That's what the evidence says. Make your own decisions. I'm I'm not here to preach anything more than that. So we have these foods. We have these refined uh, sugars. We have these sodas that patients are consistently drinking. Um, they are increasing inflammation. What foods are going to decrease inflammation? Not surprisingly, fruits and vegetables. Are great at decreasing inflammation, especially those that are high in antioxidants and something called polyphenols. We're not going to get too much into that. Basically colors, foods that have a lot of different colors and all these things is a great way to talk to patients and say, Hey, are you eating different colors? So if you're only ever eating strawberries and you're thinking, Hey, I'm doing great. As far as antioxidants, you're doing better than many people. But you could do other colors as well. There's plenty of things. And eating around the season is something that people talk about very frequently is what's what is the fruit or vegetable that's in season. Um, on top of that, as far as antioxidants and all that is concerned, fatty fish um, is going to be pretty good for you. And that tends to be more of the higher quality of fish. So tilapia is usually way down there, like fish sticks and getting a filet of fish at McDonald's. That doesn't really count as fatty fish. I'm sorry. It doesn't. <laughs> Uh, And then nuts, nuts are also a great uh, source of a lot of the, because it really packs a lot of good nutrients um, into those things as far as decreasing inflammation. So fruits and vegetables, fatty fish, and nuts seem to be great uh, at improving all of that. Now, when we're talking to patients about some of these things, um, especially sodas, uh, it's, it's incredible how much you can improve because soda, on top of that, you're talking about caffeine and things like that. If you're improving patients' sleep, you're also improving their recovery. Um, And sometimes you can be doing all the exercises again and all these things, but it's just not hitting the mark. They're not improving the way that you want them to. Um, And so nutrition can be that extra uh, level that you can kind of push a little bit further. So that's in terms of uh, inflammation and sort of systemic inflammation, which we'll touch up again, and diabetes, because obesity is also argumentatively just systemic inflammation for a while. Um, but let's go to osteoporosis now. So osteoporosis is another thing. Bone health is something we care about, especially in the older population, um, bone mineral density. And we always come across this idea of calcium. So here's where we get into this interesting thing. When people talk about calcium and how to get more calcium, what I tend to hear and see is that three things are usually offered in terms of diet and calcium milk, unsurprisingly, fortified cereals and just calcium fortified foods, which is basically where something didn't have calcium and they added calcium into it. Um, And then usually just calcium supplements of some sort of variety. So it seems that increased calcium consumption through studies, uh, not calcium, sorry, increased milk consumption leads to increased mortality and increased hip fracture rate. Um, It was increased hip fracture rate in women in men. It was unchanged, but increased consumption didn't improve their fracture rate. It it just stayed the same. It increased mortality across the board. Um, So in terms of milk, maybe not necessarily the best. And it's been seen a lot that if you generally look at countries that have the highest dairy and milk consumption, they also have the highest uh, prevalences of fractures, osteoporosis as well. Um, That's interesting. Yeah. And it's some, some more of the European countries, um, uh, that have that, so that kind of leads us to think, okay, maybe the whole idea of drinking milk, isn't the best, but why I, we don't want to just harp on it. And this is where we're really going to get into some of the more scientific sides of things. Um, yeah. so listeners stay with me.
0: I'm curious to hear about the milk now. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Uh, but it's, it's, it. it's interesting. <laughs> So why does this happen? So the interesting thing, we'll talk about two parts. Um, milk, a lot of people have dairy allergies, uh, lactose intolerances, and dairy seems, dairy seems to be very inflammatory. In general, for a lot of gut issues, um, Dietitians usually tell people to stay away from dairy in general, it's inflammatory. It also increases acidity. Uh, for us in our blood. And that is important as well. Uh, We're going to find out here in a little bit. Acidity meaning lower pH, meaning increased percentage of little uh, hydrogen ions throughout the blood. So what was found, um, also milk obviously increased the amount of protein. It was found that basically for a 40 uh, gram increase in protein, there was a 50 milligram um, Increase in excretion of calcium through urine. So basically, we peed out more urine and didn't, uh, more urine, my goodness, more calcium, more calcium, and we didn't maintain as much calcium as we took in more protein. So, dairy or not dairy didn't matter. More protein, less calcium uh, that is left with us. So the question is, well, why? 90% of calcium that was ingested was basically excreted out through urine if the pH of the blood was too low. Hmm. So you may be taking in all of the great fortified cereals, all of that wonderful milk, but if the milk causes inflammation and which causes increased acidity, if the increased sugar in the cereal does the same thing, you're getting rid of 90% of that calcium and it's not going into your bones. Why, right? That's the question is what, why don't we absorb it? So this is where it gets really fun and interesting and I'm gonna nerd out on everybody here. Um, So there is a molecule. We talk about calcium a lot, but phosphorus is another part that's very important to it. Um, Calcium is stored in bones. 99% of our calcium is in our bones and it is stored as basically calcium, phosphorus, and some oxygen and hydrogen in a giant, giant molecule. In order for us to reduce the pH or the acidity to improve the pH of our blood, our body takes the calcium and phosphorus out of the bones, breaks it apart, so that the calcium and everything can bind properly to all the hydrogens. And then we excrete all the calcium that we don't use. And so this process happens if our pH is too low. If you add in a bunch of calcium into that by drinking milk or anything else, your body's going, we don't need that right now. We're taking calcium out of the bones. We're not putting any in, no thank you. Please get rid of that. And so 90% of it goes out. So the part that we need to address is, how do we make sure that pH stays the same? But on top of this, what's the right ratio of the calcium and the phosphorus? Because in our bones, in that molecule, the ratio is about two to one. Technically it's 2.2 to one, but it's about twice as much calcium as there is phosphorus. In cow milk and a lot of dairy milks, it is about 1.2 or 1.5 to one. So it's not quite enough calcium actually. In human milk, it turns out it's, it's perfect. It's, it's about two to one. So human milk is fine, and that makes perfect sense. So what foods have a good ratio and what foods don't increase acidity so that we're able to actually absorb the calcium into the bones? Leafy greens, it turns out. So things like turnip mm-hmm. greens, kale, spinach, all of these things have an alkalizing effect on the blood so they don't make it acidic. And they have a great ratio. And you can even just Google the calcium to phosphorus ratio, and it gives. There's a huge list of foods that, and then you look. It's all the vegetables, uh, berries, things like that. They give you the good ratios. Um, So that essentially tells us we should probably eat more leafy greens, which isn't surprising. We all know that, (laughs) but it gives you a better idea of why. Um, As an added benefit, vitamin D helps us absorb even more of it because unfortunately uh, we're kind of fighting ourselves when it comes to calcium, because our gut isn't really great at absorbing calcium. Um, The numbers are something like 15 uh, to 20% only of the calcium we ingest we can even take in through our gut. So you're already at a disadvantage. Then you add in the acidity, the inflammation. No wonder uh, we're we're seeing so much of the osteoporosis, uh, things like that. Um, And so the bottom line is, I'm not saying take out dairy, but understand what dairy might be doing and what these inflammatory things might be doing, um, and know that sources of calcium are actually going to be more of those leafy greens that are going to be a better source of calcium. Truthfully, leafy greens have a crazy amount of protein in them as well. The problem is they don't have a lot of, um, calories, but if you go protein to calories, leafy greens have more protein than meat, um, technically does, uh, and beans. The problem is you have to eat so much of it that there's just no way that you, that you can keep it up. Um, but you'd be surprised how much like spinach is 50% protein. We look at our calories. So, but you have to eat lots of spinach and nobody's going to do that <sighs> about all of it. But that was yeah, a lot of that's... rambling. I, I, did I miss anything? Did, did any of that get really confusing and weird?
0: No, I was, I think I was following you and it was just, Very surprising to hear about the milk because I mean, I am the one that has allergies, so I don't drink much. I can't at all. Um, But I didn't know that the general population was causing inflammation. So that that was something new for me. That was crazy to think about that. Mm -hmm. Uh, The most people probably think, yeah, let's drink milk, increase our calcium and all of that that you just said. And then to hear that increase the number of fractures. Like on the population and women, that was crazy.
1: Yeah. And that's, it's, it's interesting. Absolutely.
0: And I, yeah. And I I heard about before the pH of our body, how that's important, but I didn't know that, for example, milk would make your body be more acid, Mm -hmm. right? Increase the acidity. So that was also something new for me.
1: And it's. The thing about it is it's such a fine line as far as our pH, our blood pH really doesn't move a whole lot. So even those small changes they have, they end up having a big impact now, so that people don't think I'm somehow against milk. Um, that study of the increased fractures, they basically looked at, um, I believe it was glasses of milk throughout the day and they went from zero to up to three glasses of milk throughout the day. So obviously as you went it up, it increased. so yeah. if you drink one glass of milk, it's not as if you're, doing this awful, crazy thing to you, but just understand what it is doing and just yeah. make your own uh, kind of ideas and, and deductions. From I think that.
0: it's just balancing as well. We are not going to drink three glasses of milk every day. So, I mean, right? I assume, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs>
1: I, would I think... have had patients that do that. I've had patients that say, oh, no, really like, like I'm on it. I drink three glasses of milk a day. And, and I used to think that that was good. I used, okay, all right, that's good. And now I'm realizing, oh, hold on. Uh, it's not necessarily something they get, and, um, and maybe
0: people do this because that's what they think that is—it's gonna be good. So I'm gonna kind of not force myself to drink, but like, okay, I like milk, so let's drink more a day because it's gonna be good for my bones, mm-hmm.
1: right? Right. So, uh, but unfortunately, that's that's not the case. Seemingly, um, the interesting thing there was some speculation about how does calcium affect muscles because calcium ions are used in muscle contraction. Um, but it doesn't seem that there's a huge effect um, in, in that regard. So if you ever have people thinking, oh, I need to drink calcium, I need to take in calcium for muscles. Just so you guys know, it's primarily bones um, that that it ends up impacting because um, that's kind of been looked at. But more research needs to be done in, in, in that regard.
0: Yeah. And um, I have a question about yeah. almond milk. Have you heard anything about the almond milk? How would that be impacting calcium or...
1: Sure. Um, it, it is better because it's not quite as inflammatory. Here's the catch with almond milk. Um, unfortunately though, almond milk is still inflammatory most of the time, um, unless you make your own because they put in a bunch of additives and other things. So it is still processed foods. Is it better than regular milk? Yes. Uh, Is it all around just good? Uh, you could probably do even better than that. Um, but yeah, that's, that's about where it is, but it does have good calcium. Okay.
0: And all of this about milk, do you think is that it has anything to do with the milk being so like with all these things that they put on the milk to keep it like just because I remember like when I was a kid, my mom would buy in Brazil was different because we have these packages of milk. They were, you have to keep it refrigerated and in two, three days would go bad. So we would warm up to see if it was still good, the milk. Mm -hmm. And just, I feel now it's it's different. I don't know if it's because of the amount of conservatives and stuff in the milk. Do you think there is anything to do with that? That maybe the natural milk, if you would think it wouldn't be as inflammatory as the ones with conservatives and stuff?
1: Absolutely. And uh, this is actually true for milk. And I would say true for for meats and um, all across the board. Unfortunately, the majority of our patients are not eating you know, grass fed beef and uh, free range eggs and milk straight from it. We, um, we went up to New York and my brother loves getting, if we stay near a farm, he loves to go and see if he can just get milk straight from the cow. Like if he can ask the farmer to just give it to them. And a lot of times, cause it's technically illegal, like they could get sued for it. Um, he ends up getting it anyway, but, uh, that would arguably be better. However, because milk, after they get it, it goes through a whole process. I don't really want to discuss. uh, Well, there's an amount of pus that is supposed to be allowed inside milk. That is okay. If you really want to never drink milk again, you can research that. Um, But yes, there's so many antibiotics that go into the animals. Uh, There's so much that that goes into it that, yeah, if you're looking at the mass produced animal products, they're usually more processed than we think. So even just the ground beef or the chicken, there's so much antibiotics and things in there, even though it is just the meat. It's more processed than we think, and it's really those things that we're concerned with. Before, when we talked about inflammation and carcinogenic, when you're looking at more of these grass-fed and more organic kind of stuff, that's it's it's going to be better, and they have better uh, nutritional profiles as well.
0: But even if it is healthier and all of that, it's not something that's like doable for the the vast majority of population. So there is not a lot of no really point of discussing. Not that it doesn't matter, but who is going to get access to that anyways? So it's just, it's hard. There's no way that we
1: can. And that's where usually I don't, and I'll talk about kind of, well, I might as well drop it in here. Um, I don't like when people go uh, say like the vegan diet, uh, and people use the word vegan because then immediately patients go and they lock up. Um, the way that I tend to discuss it with patients is I like using the term plant-based diet and, nowadays plant-based means 100 percent plants no animal products that's not how i take to mean it i take to mean it like this most of the time when we talk about food and you ask a patient what are you having for dinner or what did you have uh, last night we base it around meat people will go oh i had chicken and rice oh i had steak and potatoes the base is the meat um whatever it is and you can people even truncate it to that they'll go like yeah i'm thinking you know chicken i'm thinking fish for dinner it's whatever the meat is. All I tell patients, is, I'm like, eat your meat, like do whatever, but do me a favor and switch your perspective and base it off of your vegetables, off of the fruits and vegetables that we know you should be eating. So instead say, oh, I'm going to have rice for dinner, or I'm going to have potatoes for dinner with some chicken. And as you have them shift that slowly, the amount of that inflammatory food that they're going to be eating, hopefully is going to decrease as just you're shifting that perspective of let's include those and uh, antioxidants, fruits, and vegetables in there as well. So, but that's on the side of how to talk to patients about it and things like yeah. that.
0: Yeah. And about the obesity, you're gonna say something more specific about it.
1: Uh, yeah. Well, about obesity, and really, it's it's kind of a combination of diabetes, uh, heart heart disease, cardiovascular disease, and uh, obesity altogether. Um, so this, all of all of these things that I'm talking about, in the end, they will sum up to sort of what did I conclude from the research um, was sort of like the ideal diet. I hate using that, I put it in quotes uh, because really there's no ideal for any person. It's always gonna vary a little bit. But um, in general, it was found that high carbohydrate diets were good for diabetics. They improved insulin sensitivity uh, and overall across the board, which seems counterintuitive. because you go, wait, diabetes, don't do sugar. Sugar and all that is bad. Here's the catch. It turns out that as long as you include a proper amount of fiber, which we're generally under eating fiber by a lot, and a lot of the processed foods don't have fiber, animal products don't have fiber. um, If you include fiber with the high um, carbohydrate diet, you improve insulin sensitivity, as well as a lot of the markers for heart disease so hdl ldl ratio improves a lot of the uh, triglycerides all the wonderful stuff it improves and interestingly enough especially if you um if you reduce the amount of trans and saturated fats so these are all the fats that are the easy way is they're solid at room temperature so any kind of lard any kind of um butters all those things if they're generally solid at room temperature if you tend to exclude those and include more of the, you know, olive oils, avocado oils, things like that, you also improve the lipid profile of people. And that profile is improved two to two and a half times more in specifically diabetics. So all of that to say that if you're maintaining good fats, so we said like uh, fatty fish, nuts, if you're making sure there's plenty of fiber, that you're including uh, into the diet. Leafy greens, fruits and vegetables, all of these things have plenty of fiber. Um, That is gonna improve diabetes, that is gonna improve calcium retention, and that's gonna improve inflammation. All of these things are are, are gonna be benefited from it. So as long as you're maintaining this idea of the the ratios of the nutrients that we said, which was about 10 to 15% protein, 15 to 30% fats, and then 60 to 75% carbs, uh, which the reason those are ranges is because it's it's just gonna change for, if you're an athlete, you're gonna need more a little bit more protein. Um, but, and, and then fats are just gonna be determined on how well you can um, work with carbs. And if you're getting to the point where you're having these in-depth discussions with your patients, where you're saying, hey, let's tweak your carbs a little bit. Let's talk about your fats a little bit that's probably a time to refer them out. This is more of a general guideline. If you're having somebody coming in and you have them just, hey, can you do a little food diary for me and just look at how much of this stuff you're eating? And you find out they're eating 40% fats, 30% protein and some carbs, you're going, okay, obviously you need to shift some things here. Um, But that's where it just gives you an idea of what's right and what do we need to kind of um, move towards uh, in regards to all that.
0: So on the diabetes, you said like the, not the key, but it's the the important thing is make sure that they are eating fiber,
1: right? Yeah. Make sure that, that they're eating fiber. Um, and usually, so this is a resource and I'll mention it again uh, at the end, but honestly, health.gov is a great resource. Uh, we sometimes tend to think that, oh, a lot of the government things don't have a lot of information on them, but their guidelines for healthy eating has, it's it's a vast document, it's about 140 pages plus, plus. Um, and it's they've really been progressing it. And it gives you a lot of good starter information and it's a great resource for patients as well. Um, and so that way they can get a little bit more educated about it and, and, and you can sort of proceed with that. Um, so their percentages are a little bit different in that sense. But they're going up to somewhere of around 30 grams of fiber is what we need. Our trends is about 15. People are usually doing about half of that. Um, so huge underconception of fiber in general.
0: So as I, I hear you saying about the grams and percentages of like how much fat and protein. So mm-hmm. in practical terms, how are you going to know that like talking to your patient? Because, okay, we know the theory, the the, the the percentage, the grams, but like how you're gonna translate that to practical terms?
1: Perfect question. And this is where I also go, um, we as physical therapists deal with a lot of numbers all the time that we don't ever say to patients. Um, so, and sometimes we do, you know, you measure knee range of motion after total knee replacement and you're like, hey, you're almost at zero, you almost got full extension, we're almost there. Um, so it's important for us to know the numbers you don't necessarily have to overburden the patient with numbers unless that's something they're asking for a lot of times you can usually get a good assessment of how much of anything that they're generally eating and once again i'll say if you go to that resource of um, the health.gov they'll give you small portion uh, sizes of how much it should be and if you just go hey can you tell me what you're eating throughout the day in general, we know that if we're hearing that they're having animal products for all three uh, meals, or if they're eating more than three meals and they're consistently doing that, it's telling you they're likely overconsuming in protein. Um, it's telling you that they're likely overly inflamed. If they're telling you that they're drinking sodas um, and that they're not intaking in enough water and that there's a lot of sugar and snacks that they're having, like chips or candy, that tells you there's an increased amount of inflammation, most likely, and all of those things are going to affect the acidity of the blood so you're thinking okay if calcium absorption is an issue most of our patients that's not something we really think about that often but if it is but you're thinking about that and thinking about decreasing inflammation so you're going more along those trends now how do you have these discussions with patients um okay this is a specific patient so this is from experience i had a patient come in um couldn't sleep wasn't sleeping very well at all and um We couldn't figure it out, wasn't recovering, had some pain. Pain didn't seem to respond, low back pain. And then at one point came in with a big gulp, which is like 32 ounces. Maybe it's like 48 ounces, something ridiculous. One of those ridiculous size things. Turns out drinking three uh, big gulps of Mountain Dew um, every day and pretty much no water. Now. One would think, okay, we have to tell them absolutely stop drinking all soda and drink water. That's never going to happen. That's we have to be realistic about it. So what we actually did is I said, can you drink half of a big gulp of water? Just add that. And then slowly we said, okay, full big gulp of water. And then we took out one of the ones of soda. So we're just slowly transitioning. It's a slow shift. And after with one big gulp of water, pain at night went away completely. It wasn't even, it was just, it was just water at the end. We didn't get to know uh, Mountain Dew. We ended up, it was a uh, one big cup of Mountain Dew and two big gulps of water. Um, that, that is also just a habit that the patient had, right? The, the patient liked drinking from a giant cup with a straw. So instead of saying, get a water bottle, get anything like that, that's new habits they have to teach. So it's, it's working within their, their sort of ability. It's the same thing with, with foods. You know, if somebody's going, yeah, I'm really making sure I'm drinking all my milk for calcium, or I'm, I'm making sure that my protein intake is nice and high. Saying, have you thought about leafy greens? And if they're like, that's no protein than that. Well, actually, there's more protein in that than that, and than what you're doing. And then just look into that. And then it's better for your calcium. So it's these small shifts um, when we talk to patients um, that we're noticing, as opposed to telling them you're restructuring your entire diet and change it completely. Uh, because yeah. it's it's a process.
0: It's more like a guidance on like what you should do and avoid and try to increase, as you said, in general terms. So it makes sense. Right. And I have a question about the vitamin D that we were yeah. talking, that you said that helps to absorb calcium, right?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And the vitamin D, do you mean taking supplements? Because I think I'll, most people with this, pandemic, uh, we've been hurting up a, a lot about vitamin D and finding out that most people are with like, not, I don't know, deficient, but like with low levels of vitamin D. So just to clarify on that topic. So what, what do you mean by vi- vitamin D, vitamin D? The-
1: sure. Um, most people are deficient in vitamin D. That's, that's just, that's true. Pre-pandemic during post, most people are. Um, they even did some researchers, uh, research on skateboarders in California, some kids that were skateboarding in California. So they're getting a lot of sun, yeah. uh, which is how we generally make vitamin D. And they were deficient in vitamin D. Um, so here are a couple things about it. Uh, one, if you're getting, if you have uh, a patient that's getting their physical, um, usually if they're getting any kind of blood work, vitamin D a lot of times is tested, and that's usually something that they can see and they can ask their primary care. It is pretty safe to assume that they're deficient in vitamin D most of the time. And you really, you can't, if you supplement with vitamin D and get plenty of sunlight, it's not like you're gonna overdo vitamin D. So supplementation with vitamin D is usually a good idea. When it comes to going outside and getting your dose of vitamin D, um, uh, skin is gonna be a great way for us to take in vitamin D. It's getting colder here now, so most likely you're gonna be bundled up. So here's the Mm -hmm. other catch. We develop vitamin D because it's more of actually, it's called vitamin D, but it's technically a hormone of how it works. We also generate it if we get sunlight through our eyes. So if when you go outside, you're always wearing sunglasses, you're depriving yourself of some of that vitamin D. This doesn't mean stop wearing sunglasses, but it means that sometimes allowing yourself to get some of that sunlight into your eyes will also help you generate and get some of that vitamin D. Uh, But supplementation is usually, it's a good way to go. Um, it's very simple. Um, they're small, tiny little pills, and you don't even have to take them. You could take one once a week. Um it's nothing crazy or difficult to do.
0: Yeah. Uh it's interesting because uh we did that on the physical we test, vitamin D and me and my husband, we were deficient And we just in that time we just came back from Brazil from summer. We got plenty of sun. So we were like, mm-hmm. how. Can we be deficient? We just got tons. Like, when are we not going to be deficient? Because if you're, you know, after all this sun and still deficient. So that was something very interesting that we just paid attention for the first time because people start talking more about it because of the mm-hmm. pandemic. So we were like, huh, that's that's different. That's something.
1: Yeah. And I, w- I wonder, and this is not something that I know for sure, but I wonder if in general, we are spending if we talk about evolution, we're spending a lot more time indoors. Uh, we mm-hmm. used to be out at outside all the time. So our bodies are not as efficient at generating and creating vitamin D, even though the input from the sun is there. Um, so that I'm wondering if that is also a big part of it, because it's sort of what we talked about uh, with diabetes and that the interesting part is people think don't give them sugar, don't give them all the glucose, but truly as you give them more, the body goes, Oh, I need to get better at, using insulin to digest this. And that's why it seems that the high carbohydrate diets did better. There may be a similar uh, mechanism here of, we are not efficient at producing vitamin D because usually we spend all time indoors. So even if we're out in the sun, our body goes, I don't know what to do with this. I haven't done this for a while.
0: Yeah, yeah, so. it makes sense. When you said once a week, taking vitamin D, vitamin D should be enough so you don't have to take every day the supplement.
1: Um, it just, it depends on what supplement you get, because a lot of them, it, it, there's different units and they it's not measured in milligrams. It's measured in, in units. And because yeah. there's some that are like 3000 units
0: mm-hmm. and yeah,
1: you can take one of those. You don't need to consistently be doing that. Uh, and so it just, it depends on which supplement you get. And this is where I go. Yeah. If you're getting way too into the numbers, that may be a time to refer out because you may take some amount of the supplement but you don't know what that did to your actual vitamin D level. So the best yeah. thing to do is sure. Take that supplement and you're pro- you're not going to overdose if you, if you take it like 10,000 units, all of a sudden, it's not nothing that drastic. Um, what does that do? Go a month, go two months later. Can you get another physical? What did your vitamin D level do? If it's skyrocketed and it's through the roof, you can go down. Maybe you don't need to take it as frequently. Mm-hmm. um if you're only taking it once a week and all of a sudden it's not so and that's where we have to play yeah. around with it a little bit more because that's a lifelong thing and uh, sometimes we don't see patients for that long especially yeah. if we talk about getting patients yeah. better in four or five visits and something that that we we strive for to get them better faster so that their yeah. own advocate and they know how to get themselves better you may yeah. not have that interaction with them quite as often yeah still more often than the doctors though.
0: yeah yep but as you said it's just more like general advice right?
1: Correct. Um, one other piece that's just coming to me that I, I we didn't touch on that is unrelated to all of those things that I said is magnesium and potassium. And this is just to help uh, people out because I ended up doing, as a student, I ended up doing a little in-service on this because we had a debate in the clinic about it. So obviously for us, when patients come in and they talk about cramping and muscles cramping, Um, Yes, sure, um, soft tissue mobilization can be a a good thing that can sometimes help with that. But inevitably we go, how's your water intake? Which is, that's the first part. If they're not drinking enough water, it's probably water. And then the second people always go, oh, you know, it's just potassium. You should just eat bananas um, and you'll be better. So the interesting thing is potassium and magnesium, both uh, deficiencies in both can cause cramps there are different kinds of cramping of the muscle. Potassium is cramping while using the muscle. So you're thinking about runners or somebody while exercising, they cramp up. That could also just be weakness of the muscle, could be potassium. If they're waking up in the middle of the night, far, far more likely that that is a deficiency in magnesium. Um, And the way I remember it is midnight magnesium, they both start with M, that's how I think about it. So if they're waking up in the middle of the night at midnight, that's probably magnesium most people will say yeah just drink a gatorade and you'll be fine oddly enough gatorade does have potassium but no magnesium powerade has magnesium but no potassium (laughs) i don't know why i don't know if their formulas uh, were somehow addressed that way but if you look on the back of the label it actually says it on there it says magnesium it says potassium and how much they have Um, there is a drink called noon n-u-u-n it's a little powder it has both And that's an easy way for patients to get both. And that seems to be the the overarching recommendation of if you do that one as your drink of choice to get the right electrolytes, that's the one to go with.
0: I had a patient that she usually says that she drinks uh, tonic water for cramps. Mm -hmm. She says it helps.
1: And I don't know for her if that is. And there there might be salt in the specific tonic water that she gets because some Mm -hmm. even mineral waters and things they have salts in in, in there so it can definitely help but um yeah i just it depends on what's in the specific tonic yeah
0: i know she keeps like on her refrigerator and (laughs) sometimes when she's like doing exercise or something she's like hold on i have to get my tonic water
1: (laughs) (laughs) that's awesome that she knows that that it helps that's perfect yeah
0: yeah okay that's good to know um and where do you buy this liquid? Like in any any store or something Yeah, specific? noon
1: is, yeah, anywhere. You, you, most grocery stores are going to have it. You can get it online. Uh, I think they now sell it where you can actually buy the, the liquid. But also, usually, I just tell patients to get it in packets um, mm-hmm. because then it lasts longer because then you don't necessarily need the whole packet always. You can use half a packet mm-hmm. or a little bit and drink it throughout the day as you mix it into the water. And then usually, if they do it that way, they end up drinking more water. Um, as opposed to True. if they drink Gatorade or Powerade uh, it ends up being far more sugar in that stuff. And um, yeah. so that's the other reason to kind of push them away from it.
0: Awesome, that's good to know. Uh, yeah. bef- before we transition to the final questions, do you have mm-hmm. anything else um, to add or anything that you want to say about what we just talked?
1: No, I think that was a lot. That, <laughs> it was. was it's like how we've been talking
0: for one hour. The time is just like <laughs> I hope hope that people are still with us here.
1: Yes. (laughs)
0: Um, So what is our favorite resource of information? Any books or anything specific that you like?
1: Sure. Um, Once again, help.gov for those wonderful things. If you want to get really, really into all the crazy nutrition things, nutritionfacts.org is awesome. And they uh, do a lot of things in video. So if you want to just kind of put it on, and they usually go through research studies for that, so it's easier than you having to read a bunch of research studies. And I'm giving you sort of nutrition specific things because all the other guests give you wonderful things in terms of physical therapy, and those are all great um, ideas. Now, um, the the health.gov is a great place to start for you and your patients, um, because it's it, it's a very, very basic resources, but they also give a lot of references if you wanna dive deep. On a completely shifted side of things, uh, because I think it's something important to talk about. Um, the book Atomic Habits has kind of been thrown around for a lot of people. And if none of you have read it, uh, possibly you you need to read it. Um, I, I hope that some, some of the people listening have. It basically talks about ways for us to improve our habits, help other people improve their habits, and how we should look about it. This can be used in terms of improving patients with their HEP. Um, it could be talking about nutrition, whatever else it may be. But understanding how we can improve our own habits and help patients improve habits is so powerful because we know what they need to do, but we need to help them get to the point of actually doing it and finding that uh, motivation. What I will say is that I, I think that, um, that, that sometimes might be lacking for people is we go, uh, I don't want to read that research study. Uh, I don't, I don't want to do that. Yeah, I know I should, but I don't want to that book will help you get into the routine of possibly reading a case study every week or whenever, so that you can develop that. Because if you don't make it a habit getting into all this extra research and all this stuff, it's not going to happen. Um, you have a great form of this podcast that you're constantly getting new information in from people and you're learning all this awesome stuff. Um, and people listening to it also are getting this stuff. So getting into the habit of getting this information, that book is going to help you get there.
0: Awesome. And uh, what would be the best advice you give to clinicians that are starting their careers? Um,
1: so this is something I've thought about, and I especially I'm going to go a, a step before, and even even students that you're about to to go into it, if you're possibly listening to this. But if you're starting out, it's going to be okay. You're going to be fine. It'll be great. Be you, a new clinician or a student. Um, sure, you're gonna you're gonna mess up, and there're gonna be mistakes. Um, that's okay we tend to try to especially after pt school a lot of people want to be perfectionists and we want to be perfect as new clinicians and we can't possibly mess up and we beat ourselves up about the fact that we made a patient feel a little bit worse learn from it and there are plenty of other guests that have said this before if you did a manual technique and the patient felt worse learn from that that actually tells you something that's not oh no that's bad i'm never doing that again that tells you a piece of information so learn from each piece of information but don't overanalyze because burnout is very real in our field. And I, I think if we push ourselves too much, that's kind of what happened to me and in, in, in many regards, because I was pushing myself too much with uh, documentation and being blind, that wasn't very fun. Um, so my thing is make sure that yes, you want to be the best clinician that you can be, but go at the pace that you want to go at and failure is perfectly fine. Just learn from it.
0: Yeah. That's very true. And what personal qualities or abilities that you think are important to become a successful physical therapist?
1: Um, be authentic, be yourself. Um, I, that's part of the reason I'm even talking here about nutrition is because even getting into physical therapy, I've always been bringing other parts of myself into it. Um, I love making videos and I love being a teacher. So I loved always presenting and showing things to patients because that was just part of me. Does every therapist have to do it that way? No, but that's what felt natural to me. And so bringing that in um, to your own practice, the reason patients come to you is not because you're the best, it's because you're the best for them most likely, right? That's that's where your repeat patients are gonna happen. And so if you're thinking that I'm gonna be the best physical therapist there ever was, that's impossible. You're gonna be the best physical therapist that you can be. And that's awesome. And you're going to find your niche, and that's that's exactly what uh, what is important. So I think it's the qualities of of bringing your own little personal things uh, into it.
0: Yep, yep. And I think that's important because sometimes, as you said, we beat ourselves up because we want to do the best and figure it out every single case, <laughs> you know, and have all the tools to solve all the problems. And it and it's not as simple like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and for people that want to learn more about you or wanted to contact you, uh, do you have any contact info that you want to
1: give us? Sure. Um, you can find me on LinkedIn, Stefan Zavalin. Um, Stefan.Zavalin on Instagram. Um, there, I'm not really doing as much of this like nutrition stuff. It's, it's more of uh, putting it out about company culture and getting people moving and, and that sort of regard. Um, and then feel free to contact me if you go to the website. Um, LTMMTL.com. That's my website, and there'll be plenty of contact ways there. I love questions um, about anything and everything, and I will totally nerd out about nutrition or any physical therapy stuff. So if people want to reach out, um, I love it.
0: Awesome. I really appreciate you sharing all your nutrition knowledge with us. That was very interesting. I learned a lot of different and new things that I didn't know. So I hope that's going to help a lot of other PTs to have these conversations with the uh, their patients. And even about the fact of the APTA that he says about nutrition, that was something new for me. I had no idea when we first talked and you suggest nutrition I was like, hmm, that's going to be interesting because that's not something that we commonly talk about. So it was very great. Yeah, it was awesome to learn about these um, things and just have a general idea so we can help our patients and improve our care overall. So I really appreciate it.
1: Yeah, it was my pleasure. And again, to those listening, take the big takeaways. You can re-listen later for the really in-depth stuff. Don't feel like you're being overburdened with all this.
0: (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Bye. Questions, suggestions or topics you want to hear about, talk to me on ptprotalk.com. Join our email list to receive updates and new episodes and subscribe here. Tell your friends about it and be sure to share. Also, leave us a review and let us know what you think. We are going to publish today's video recording on my YouTube channel, so you can check the link out in the show notes. Thanks for joining us and I'll see you next time.